Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Christ Followers Bible study, we're in the book of Acts. We're in chapter 20. We'll be starting in verse 25. And as we like to do, we'll open with a word of prayer. Chuck, would you lead us, please? Lord, thank you uh, that you have uh, given me the calling and the need to do something in my life. And thank you for those present, all of whom I believe have each been called also to do something in their lives. Uh, you do that, Lord, and we thank you for that and the honor it is to know that there's a need to serve when so few do and so many are deceived. We thank you for uh, the light that you show us, and we pray that we would uh, uh, be good interpreters and uh, thoughtful administrators of what uh, you give us uh, to work with. Amen. Thank you. We are picking up our study in Acts chapter 20. Paul is making his way. He's narrowly escaped yet another plot on his life up in uh, Macedonia. He's making his way. He's trying to get down to Jerusalem before Pentecost. He's in a hurry because he has, he's been gathering up money for the Judean Christians, which as Don Preston has pointed out is a fulfillment of the of one of the prophecies that in the last days of the nations will pour their wealth into Israel, kind of like the Egyptians poured their wealth into Israel when they were leaving Egypt. But now he's bringing these offerings down. He's in a hurry to get down there. He has chosen to skip uh, going through Ephesus, where he had worked for three years, and he has asked the leaders of the church at Ephesus to come down about 20 miles or so, south of the city to meet with him before he catches his ship heading down towards Syria and Palestine. And so we're kind of in the middle of his address to them here as we pick up our reading, and we'll read verses 25 through 31, please. And now behold, I know that ye all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, shall see me my face no more. Wherefore, I take you to record this day, that I am pure from the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Take heed therefore unto yourselves, and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. 
also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. Yea, ye yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities and to them that were with me. I have showed you all things, how that so laboring ye ought to support the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had thus spoken, he kneeled down and prayed with them all. And they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they should see his face no more, and they accompanied him unto the ship. Great. Thank you very much. Okay, so the first thing we, we hear is that they're told that they will never see his face again which, of course, explains the tears and weeping in the last two verses that were read. He talks about proclaiming the kingdom, and again, we may mention this last time, but Luke seems obsessed with this idea of the kingdom. He talks about Jesus spending the entire 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension, teaching the disciples about the kingdom. We have a kingdom all through the middle. We have it here. And we're going to see the very end of Acts is Paul being totally obsessed about the kingdom. And just as an academic aside, I don't see why if this kingdom was going to be postponed until 1948 or who knows when, you know, why Paul would be so obsessed with teaching it and why Jesus would be so obsessed with teaching the details to the people who lived back then if it was still 2,000 years after they would uh, die, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But if we notice verse 27, he hasn't refrained from setting before them the whole will and purpose of God. I, I would contend, I'm somewhat of an extremist, I guess, but that the whole will and purpose of God was to establish the kingdom or to recreate the kingdom. Because remember, this is not a new kingdom. This is the kingdom of David, all those promises that our dispensational friends are waiting for to happen in Palestine, this is the same kingdom. I think the, the Zionists uh, differentiate between the throne of David, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ. They have uh, multiple different versions of kingdoms, but I only see one in the Bible, uh, from the Garden of Eden all the way to the end of Revelation, and the, the physical kingdom of Israel was a shadow of this kingdom that was God's eternal purpose. It was his whole will and purpose to create the perfect dwelling place for God on earth and the perfect bride for Christ, the only part of God who could, who could be perceived uh, by, by man, as the Gospel of John tells us. So, I believe that this whole will and purpose of God is one and the same as Paul's obsession with the kingdom, that they were not speaking of things deferred for thousands of years, but it was something that was already there 
kind of in, in a betrothal state and that it, it would reach its fruition within their lifetimes, as we see described in great detail in the book of Revelation. So this is what Paul's doing. He's obsessed with the kingdom of God, of relaying to them God's eternal purpose. And he, he says he's free of the responsibility for anyone's blood. Again, there's imminent judgment coming. We've pointed that out constantly in studying the Gospel of John and then, and then Acts that uh, the nation of Judea is under judgment and there is imminent bad things about to happen within that generation, as Jesus said over and over, and particularly in the Olivet Discourse, uh, in all the Gospels. So, uh, it, it, of course, it spread beyond uh, Judea. It spread to the whole Roman world and things were happening. I mean, there's a famine going on. There's volcanic eruptions about to begin. Anyway, uh, there's all kinds of stuff that's about to happen. But there's imminent judgment. Paul had this incredible job we talked about last week. Twelve of them stayed in Judea to teach and reach the Judean people before it was everlastingly too late for them. And Paul alone is entrusted to go out to the rest of the Roman world to to go. I, I think he went as far as there were synagogues. He went anywhere there was a Judean synagogue where, where anybody might have heard the true word of God, the true promises of God. And, uh, you know, he says right here, doesn't he, in this paragraph that he, uh, maybe it was in the one we read last week, where he went to the Judean and to the other nations as well, uh, using the synagogues as his, uh, as his starting point in all these places. So then he gives them a warning to... Uh, for these leaders to watch over themselves and over the whole flock over which the Holy Spirit had set them as uh, guardians to feed the church. And again, we, we're really hung up in, in thinking of the church as a proper noun, but it's just a, it's the word assembly. It's very similar to the word synagogue. It's not a proper name. This assembly that he purchased with the blood of his own son. And then... We have this idea of harmful wolves coming in and not spraying the flock, and then people out of the leadership rising up and perverting the truth by their words. And again, our dispensational friends try to apply this warning to today, always. There's these same warnings throughout Paul's letters that are written about this time, these same warnings, and people are studying this completely out of context, trying to apply it to this present day, and, of course, it's easy to find parallels in our culture today. It's not hard at all, but we really need to understand the context. It wasn't what we're facing today as much as it was the Judaizing influence. And as once uh, Nero would, would be wedded to the Judean government in joining them in persecution of the believers, there would be this incredible pressure for the Judean Christians and the God fears too, a little bit lesser, to revert back to the law of Moses to deny Christ and to go back to depending on the law rather than the gospel of Jesus Christ for their salvation. So I believe that this is the perversion, the great falling away that was to come within that generation that he is referring to. So he'd been warning them for three years, giving them strong advice, and he reminds them here again to continue to be extreme watchful you know he, his tears are with him he doesn't want any of them to fall back into 
the old physical Israel. He wants them all to stay strong in the newly reborn spiritual Israel. All right, any other thoughts or comments? Well, you spoke about okay. the imminence of the kingdom, so I'll say a couple of things on that. One of the facts that indicate the kingdom was imminent was the coming of John the Baptist. Malachi predicted that he was to come and before the great and notable day or terrible day of the Lord, the awesome day of the Lord. Well, for John to have come in the first century would certainly have been a miscalculation of time if the events surrounding his coming were not imminent. It's very interesting that Jesus, during the time of the vision on the Mount of Transfiguration, when the disciples saw the vision and understood that it was a vision of the parousia, or the presence of Christ, they asked the question, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must first come? And Jesus told them that he'd come already, and the Bible says, uh, then they understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. And the one thing that was different about the message of John, compared to the prophets who had gone before him, is that he preached that the kingdom had drawn near, that it was at hand and therefore that it was imminent. So his message had a very definite change in tone and time than the message that had been spoken by the prophets. And so the very fact that John appeared on the scene was a sign of the imminence of the kingdom, and of course Jesus followed thereafter saying the same thing, that the time is fulfilled. And in Mark 1, 14 and 15, where that statement is made, it indicates, number one, that he's quoting from Daniel, speaking of the kingdom, and that he is saying that the time has reached its fullness, so there was not another time to come after them. There would never be another time that would fill up the time for the prophecy of Daniel to be fulfilled. And so uh, the imminence of the kingdom, the time was fulfilled in the days of Christ, uh, you know, that is in the first century, and thus this is what Paul is, um, is speaking about in his ministry. Very good. Thank you very much. All right, continuing on in verse 32 then, Paul then is going to commend these leaders to God and his word. And again, what we call the New Testament, the Greek scriptures would not have been written down for the most part at this point. Just a few of the letters we have have been written. They certainly weren't really gathered together. So primarily, I believe he's referring to what we call the, the Hebrew scriptures. And I hope we've demonstrated that we can teach Jesus Christ, we can teach the spiritual nature of the kingdom, we can even teach the specific timing of the coming of the kingdom, all in the Hebrew scriptures. And this is, of course, what Paul had been doing all this time, using the Hebrew scriptures written in Old Hebrew and Aramaic to convince all of the God-fearing Greeks and the Judeans in the synagogue communities who heard these scriptures read every Saturday, that they all pointed to and proved that Jesus of Nazareth was Messiah. So this, I think, is the word mostly that he's speaking of that is able to build them up and to give them an inheritance among those who are set apart. So again, these that are set apart are the ones who have taken that exodus out of physical Israel, who have gone into no man's land, into a spiritual kingdom. They've left behind the tangible, the physical They've gone into something that they can't see with their eyes, and they have been set apart that way. And 
they certainly don't want to fall back, as, as he just said. Paul fed himself while he's doing all this. I think William might know a little bit about this. I don't want to get into his personal business, but you do this spiritual work and you're working at it 40, 50 hours a week or more, but you've also got to provide for yourself and your your family or your entourage in Paul's case. Paul is not only doing this teaching, but he's also working physically to provide for his own needs and those of his entourage who were so important to keep things moving all around the empire. You know, Titus, Timothy, Luke, many, many others that were going around with messages, carrying letters, bringing back contributions, so on and so forth. So he set an example of working hard to help those who are less able and to recall the words of the Lord Jesus, it is more a blessed thing to give than to receive. So, I mean, this wouldn't fly too well in the big mega churches today where they go take out a bank loan, pay themselves a six-figure, seven-figure salary. Big business, you know, this is not what Paul was into. He had this innate ability. He had such great learning, and he had the talent of working in canvas and leather, and he was able to use that talent to not only feed himself, but, again, his whole party. So he's setting a high standard there. Again, it do, this doesn't do a whole lot to prove the uh, the example of the clergy system that we have, uh, you know, today. But that's a whole other topic. Very pertinent. Well, after he said all this, he knelt down and prayed with all of them, and then, you know, they again broke into this loud weeping and and uh, embracing him. They covered him with kisses because they had heard that he said that they would never see his face again. So they're very sad as they escort him down to the ship. But he's got to be on his way to get to Jerusalem on time. All right, uh, your other thoughts or comments? Well, I think that is a very pointed part of Paul's message is that he did provide for himself. And that's one that is rarely quoted in organized churches, as you pointed out. Just emphasizing that, Mark. Yeah, now, Thank you. Well, now we do find times when Paul did allow churches to support him. I think Philippi in particular, he allowed them to send to his needs when he was in other cities because he knew that they wouldn't take it wrong and that they really understood the urgency you know, of his work. So this is not an exclusive pattern, and it's certainly fine for someone who works in the Word full-time to get supported, but we just don't see the institutional framework with boards of missions and things like that. It was like a family not like an institution is the way that I see it here. And he knew that he could do that in some places, but he couldn't really do it in other places. He he didn't want to leave the wrong impression. And unfortunately, you know, we've, well, I personally like in supporting preachers in the Philippines, we've created a whole new class of upper middle class people who live way above their peers and brethren. And you can be a, preacher in the Philippines and, and, you know, be rich in comparison to your neighbors. And uh, I've personally been involved in doing that through ignorance. Paul was much more in tune than most of us Americans are. He was worried about the example and the pattern that he was uh, setting, you know, with his work. So he, he carefully chose when to uh, accept the support and when to provide it himself. Okay. We're ready to move on into 21, which we need to do. Uh, Let's read the first six verses, if we can, of Acts 21. 
And it came to pass that after we were gotten from them and had launched, we came with a straight course into Coas, and the day following unto Rhodes, and from thence unto Patera, and finding a ship sailing over unto Phoenicia, we went aboard and set forth. Now when we had discovered Cyprus, we left it on the left hand and sailed into Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unlaid her burden. And finding disciples, we tarried there seven days, who said to Paul through the Spirit that he should not go up to Jerusalem. And when we had accomplished those days, we departed and went our way. And they all brought us on our way with wives and children till we were out of the city. And we kneeled down on the shore and prayed. And when we had taken our leave one of another, we took ship and they returned home again. Great, thank you. So, uh, Luke, uh, he says we tore ourselves away from them. I mean, this was a this was a hard parting with the uh, Christians of Asia and Ephesus because Paul had been there three years, and he, it had been about a year and a half since he had left there. He'd been there three years before. It was the scene of some of his most intense work. And so, in Ephesus, Paul had all these direct confrontations with pagans and with Judean and uh, you know it was a it was a heartbreaking farewell and Luke gives us this narration going down the coast of uh, Turkey cutting across kind of in a triangle to get down to Syria ancient Phoenicia now part of uh, Syria they get down to Tyre famous old port of the of the Phoenicians and the ship had to unload its cargo there so I don't know if this is why ended up staying a week there or not. There was a group of believers there in Tyre, but this was not the direct work of Paul, as had been the the assemblies in Asia. This area was evangelized early on after the execution of Stephen, when the Judean Christians, both Greek-speaking and Aramaic-speaking, were scattered. But the Greek-speaking ones went back home, to their uh, various cities, and a large number of them ended up in Syria. And, of course, Antioch in Syria became the base from which the, the mission, as it's called, to the entire Roman Empire uh, was launched from. So Tyre is in that area, and the group of believers there probably could go back to the time right after Stephen's death. So Paul would have known some of these people, but there wouldn't have been the same type of bonds that existed with those in Ephesus and in Asia. He did continue to receive these messages through prophets, the gift of prophecy, again, as as was the message of John the Immerser, were signs of imminent judgment coming upon the nation of Israel slash Judea. They stay there a week. They had uh, an inspirational message hear from God's spirit for Paul not to go into Jerusalem in verse 4. So that's that's what I was thinking of. Paul is not dissuaded at all, as we'll see a little later on here. But they do stay there a week, and then they continue on the journey. Again, Paul is insisting on getting up to Jerusalem before Pentecost. So there is another heartbreaking farewell uh, down on the beach as they kneel down and pray together and say goodbye. I think we can go on and read verses 7 through 14, please. 
And when we had finished our course from Tyre, we came to Ptolemaeus and saluted the brethren and abode with them one day. And the next day, we that were of Paul's company departed and came unto Caesarea. And we entered into the house of Philip the Evangelist, which was one of the seven, and abode with him. And the same man had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy. And as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. And when he was come unto us, he took Paul's girdle and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard these things, both we and they of that place besought him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What mean ye to weep and to break mine heart? For I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And when he would not be persuaded, we ceased saying, The will of the Lord be done. Great, thank you. So they're continuing down the coast, which is the far eastern coast of the Mediterranean, down from, again, present-day Lebanon, then to Palestine, and eventually come to Caesarea, which was, uh, it was more or less near the province of Judea, but it was, it was a Greek city. It was a port. It was, a, it was an engineering marvel, really. Herod the Great created a port where there was none. He used uh, cement and huge blocks of quarried stone to build an artificial breakwater, and it's just a marvel. They're, they've excavated part of it, and it's just amazing what he was able to accomplish with the technology there in the first century. Philip the Evangelist has been there for uh, 20-something years. We left him early on in the book of Acts after he had uh, taken the gospel to the Samaritans. And his daughters are still with him, and they have this gift of prophecy, which again was unique to these last days of Israel to provide them with warning after warning after warning because God was not willing that they would perish, but wanted them all to, to repent and to believe before it was too late. It's mentioned that Philip is one of the seven. These are the seven. They're, they're often called deacons, again, uh, and sometimes it's abused to, to justify the institutional church. But the seven were, were very unique. All of them that we know anything about had uh, multiple special gifts of the Holy Spirit, prophecy, speaking in languages. They were full of these miraculous gifts. They were entrusted with great responsibility. They were all Greek-speaking Judeans uh, from, from their names, and they apparently all had significant roles in getting the gospel out to the greater Roman Empire outside of Judea proper. So Caesarea, again, is a Greek city, and Philip is there at, you know, as a Greek-speaking Judean believer ministering in this Greek community. While they are there, a prophet, again, the gift of prophecy mentioned again, Agabus, we've heard of him, I think, before as well. Um, yeah, he came down from Jerusalem to Antioch back in chapter 11 
to foretell the famine that was to occur during the reign of Claudius. But he came down to uh, Caesarea and then does this demonstration with Paul's belt. This this reminds me so much of the book of Ezekiel where Ezekiel did these these types of demonstrations. He had to tie himself up and lay on one side for days and days and it's quite interesting to see some of these parallels. The Judeans in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this girdle and will hand him over to the power of the Gentiles or the non-Judeans. And again, this reminds me of exactly what happened to Jesus himself. There are intentional parallels in Luke's account between the life of Christ and the life of Paul. And so the Judeans are going to grab Paul and they're going to turn him over to the Romans. Of course, this is what happened to Jesus. The Judeans nabbed him and they turned him over to the Romans. They both are going to have, you know, three trials. There's a lot of parallels. And, I mean, and that's not just because Luke thought that was cool. I mean, the believers are the body of Christ now. Jesus had a physical body, and now he is working through a new body, a spiritual body of believers, the reborn Israel. And Paul is one of the most significant members of this spiritual body of believers. The other saints in that area are begging Paul not to go up there, but Paul won't hear any of it. He's ready to die for the name of Jesus. And so they finally gave up and said, let the Lord's will be done. All right, any thoughts or comments? Looks like maybe a good place to stop until our next lesson. It certainly can be. Yeah, this we, we've got some significant stuff. If, if you want to look ahead here, look in chapter 21. Look at this uh, discourse that Paul has with James and the elders of the uh, assembly in Jerusalem. And we're going to note some very significant things, particularly to people who have grown up uh, in amillennial eschatology or the restoration movement, the Christian churches, the churches of Christ. I'll be interested to see how most of our listeners have, have a dispensational background. At least I know Chuck, Tom, and, and others do. So I'll be interested to see what y'all take from this and how we can merge this together. It's going to be really interesting to, to see uh, how these Christians are continuing to follow the law of Moses so completely in Jerusalem. And so we're, that's what we will be trying to talk about next time here as we continue on in Acts 21. Great. Well, thanks, Mark. Appreciate the lesson. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcast. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also, at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.